you're listening to the Talk Editions Podcast, Episode 8, with Taishan Sori. I don't want performers of my music to be interpreters. I want them to perform the piece as if they wrote it. I want them to make the music there. Taishan Sori is a multi-instrumentalist and composer born in Newark, New Jersey, known for his mastery and memorization of incredibly complex scores. He has performed nationally and internationally with his own ensembles, as well as artists such as Roscoe Mitchell, George Lewis, John Zorn, Claire Chase, Evan Parker, and Anthony Braxton, among many others. He has been commissioned by the Spectral Quartet, Ojai Music Festival, International Contemporary Ensemble, and more recently, Carnegie Hall and Opera Philadelphia. He was awarded a 2017 MacArthur Fellowship. We first met him in 2014 when he was a doctoral student at Columbia University, and that was when he wrote Ornations for us. We recorded Ornations in 2019 for Ur, the inaugural release on Talk Editions. We had this conversation with Taishan in February of 2020. Stick around at the end of the interview to hear the piece in full. I'm Laura Cox, the flutist of Tack. And I'm Charlotte Mundy, vocalist of Tack. And today we're talking with Taishan Sori. Hi, Taishan. It's a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you so much. Today we're going to start by diving into Ornations, which we'll play in full at the end of this episode. When we first played this piece in 2014, it was and probably still is one of the most lively explorations of virtuosity that we've had the pleasure to play. It's really difficult, uh, really fun, really rewarding. And I'm wondering if you could fill us and our listeners in on what you were exploring with the piece, what Ornations means to you. Well, Ornations really comes from, um, you know, much of my music, um, as you might imagine, is inspired very much from that of George Lewis. And George Lewis wrote a piece in 2011 called The Will to Adorn, which deals with um, the concept of adornment or decoration, um, if you will, as more of a compositional attitude, more than as sort of a homage to uh, Zora Neale Hurston, who actually used that term in the article characteristics of uh, Negro expression. And so the term adornment came up there, you know, because, I mean, she, she often talks about um, how African-Americans typically are very well capable of, of basically decorating, you know, or wearing decorative uniform and stuff like that, you know, really dressing up well and this sort of a thing and how that's, you know, that's sort of a characteristic of how African-Americans express themselves. And so George Lewis wrote The Will to Adorn mostly as sort of a compositional response to what Zora Neale Hurston was talking about in that essay. And so ornations really comes from sort of the idea of adornment as a compositional attitude. So I just, but the way I wanted to pursue it was more or less in my own way and sort of a more quasi-improvisatory environment where, of course, there are a lot of things that are very difficult that are in there that are written out and some things that may seem impossible to play, but... Um, what I'm proposing in the notation or whatever is this sort of improvisative behavior mm-hmm. where if something seems impossible to play, it's okay to fake it a little bit, you know what I mean? <laughs> it kind of brings a different result out of the player every time it happens. Right. So that was the first idea. The second idea 
Um, you know, as I said, the whole idea of adornment, which the way that George Lewis approached it was more of this idea of decorating a decoration. You know, and that means like when you're producing sound um, on an instrument, you know, in a normal kind of way and everything, you're always finding other ways of either reproducing that sound or you're finding other ways of inflecting that sound with an ornament or you're, you're finding ways of uh, really playing with the timbre of that sound, you know, and that sort of thing. So you're, you know, you're really going beyond the idea of playing a single sound and you're finding many, a multitude of ways of dealing with that one sound. And Ornations makes an attempt to also kind of deal with that in more sort of elaborate passages. Mm, interesting. So that's kind of where, where it comes from. That is so cool. Yeah. I was thinking on the subway about how Ornations means decoration, and it doesn't, like, thinking on a very surface level, it doesn't sound like a decorative piece. It sounds like a, to me, it's like kind of fierce and scary, like on a, from a very surface level. <laughs> but it's cool to have the duality of it. Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess I would say like for our nations, it's not decorative per se, but I, I, I would say it's more. Um, for example, like during the first third of the piece, where mm-hmm. Laura, you're like sort of playing these sort of folk-like modal things, while uh, while Carlos is, is like is playing this seven-note figure underneath that. The, the, the way I'm seeing it, I'm seeing it as these two sort of strata, sort of evolving on their own and everything kind of at the same time and everything and and but you're dealing with one element like for example like you're dealing with one mode and mm-hmm. carlos is dealing with one sort of um pattern or whatever and these patterns are changing over time as it's going along and everything so I'm, i wouldn't necessarily call it decoration per se but i would call it you know finding many different ways of doing one thing right i guess that's more more or less what i'm referring to when it comes to that but the whole idea of decoration was kind of the impetus of thing that got me going you know on, on writing the piece it's really interesting too i i feel like there's the flute part and there's the clarinet part but in playing it there's something that kind of makes me think of some of your other music that happens in the combination of those parts and like the energetic space that you have to really embody in order to execute it almost as though there's like another player but the player is the resultant energy of the two bodies and it kind of makes me think a little bit more of maybe your your pieces that explore softness and silence. Is there, I feel like I've heard you talk and, and read things that you've written about the importance of that soft, silent space in your music. Is there a home for that in Ornations, or how does that play out there? No, I would say it's a little bit different uh, with, with Ornations, because it's another area of music that I tend to explore a lot, particularly mm-hmm. when I'm improvising or whatever. A lot of the times when I'm improvising, it can involve a lot of space and involve a lot of negative space and silence, but also it can involve a like very high activity, like a high, like sort of high energy, sort of raucous activity that could be going on for a long time too. And, you know, and it could be like a lot of noisy textures or it could be a lot of, a lot of notes and stuff like that, like a more maximalist sort of aesthetic. So I guess you might say that ordination sort of falls in the more maximal <laughs> aspect, yeah. aspect of the of the work that I do, but I see, I see that also sort of informing a lot of the work that I do, which the majority of it is very slowly moving, and a lot of it is chromatic, and a lot of it is um, more about decay and more about silence and more about these other uh, sort of things or whatever. But ordinations holds a special place because I don't really like to write maximal music too much. I mean, just for for me personally, because I'm not really hearing it 
you know, a lot of the time, but at that time I was really hearing something like that. And I was really sort of trying to come up with something, you know, that hopefully that could inspire you guys and push you all into other realms that maybe could be explored or whatever, just for my own work. Well, it definitely inspired. It, it also definitely pushed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know you mentioned Adornment and Zora Neale Hurston and George Lewis, and I'm wondering, was really feeling as though you were hearing this more maximalist music at this time more of a response to these influences, or were there other things that really pulled you toward maximalism at that point in your compositions? I I say it was a little bit of both, you know, just in terms of uh, knowing George Lewis's work for, you know, many years beyond my Columbia days and working with him. I mean, I've known George since the early 2000s. I've Mm -hmm. met him. Uh, very long time ago and so hearing his work but also dealing with improvisation a lot that also deals with these maximal principles I, I just find a lot of value just for me personally and like for me personally I almost would rather improvise that stuff than to write it out you know and that's that's just where where I was at the time and everything and so when I wrote Ornations it was sort of an opportunity for me to like really see if I can investigate that, you know, in my own way through notation. So it was actually like one of the first pieces that really has all of this fast moving activity almost consistently the entire time mm-hmm. um, as it's going on. And, and, and it has this sort of meditative quality to it too, which is present in all of my music and which is also present in the work of George's music as well or whatever. Like in some, in some of his music has this sort of meditative energy to it. Also Roscoe Mitchell for that matter, his music also has this sort of meditative sort of thing going on in there. And Roscoe was also uh, another huge influence uh, for, for my writing of Ornations. But, you know, when we think of meditation, I mean, we tend to think, you know, everything is moving very slowly and everything is quiet and everything is sort of, um, you know, almost, you know, it, like you're sort of sitting still or whatever. But, I mean, Ornations to me is another form of meditation, as well as, you know, getting into this, these sort of raucous moments of improvisation where you're staying in this highly active space for a long period of time. I mean, that to me also is just as valid as meditation as it is, you know, playing through a slow piece of music. That's really what's central to me in terms of how that work can relate to George's work that, and also how uh, it relates to any other music that I've written or whatever up to that point. That's so fascinating. We just played it a few days ago. And I mean, it's really interesting to come out of it in a program because you kind of start the next piece, but your mind and your body is like, it, it, it is very meditative. I feel like I've, I've gone somewhere else afterwards. And the audience also yeah, no, can't help but be brought along. Yeah, too. That's great. You know, and it, it really makes me happy to see that this piece, you know, five years later is still getting the amount of play that it's getting. I mean, I'm really, I'm really happy that you guys oh, we just love you know, it. touring it and, and playing it all the time and all of this stuff. You know, it's like, it's very seldom that my pieces do that, you know, so this is really cool to hear that it's been going on since I wrote it for you guys. Like, I thought it was just going to be the one performance. And it's- <laughs> right. And now here we are. So, yeah. It's so amazing. And that, you know, like during a recording session when we were all there and everything, just seeing you all really from, from you know, I guess it was 2014 when it was premiered, like just seeing how you two have become at one with this piece. I mean, like, it's, it's like, it's as, it's as if you guys wrote the piece. <laughs> Man, that's a, that's a high compliment. <laughs> no, it's, 
Yeah, well, you know, this is exactly what I hope to achieve in any piece of music that I write out mm-hmm. to give to performers. I don't want, I don't want, I don't want performers of my music to be interpreters. That's not what I'm looking for. <laughs> you know, I, I, I want them, I want them to perform the piece as if they wrote it. I want them to make the music there. Mm-hmm. And you, you all have essentially have done that. You know, during the intervening five, six years. You know, now <laughs> that you know the piece has been being played and everything and then and then you know hearing the results of the recording like in fact i don't recall really even saying much in the studio when we were there because of how certain passages would sound and everything and then sometimes when you or carlos would think oh man you know like i screwed this up or i screwed that up sometimes i thought well that's cool you should keep that (laughs) you know because it's so fresh every time you know every time it's done like i i could never i could never tire of um any of you playing through the music so it's you know it's an honor for me and so you know i just wanted to say that because when when that happens you know when performers become at one with any piece of music i write it feels like there's it it feels like i'm a part of them and they're a part of me and there's this sort of unification that's there that we don't really talk about but that exists that's that's what i that's what i hope for because music in the end is really you know, about people. And so when I first wrote this piece, you know, I, I wrote the piece immediately having you and, and Liam, who at that time was in the talk ensemble, you know, I had both of you in mind. I've done some research in terms of what you played, what pieces you played, who you studied with, where you went to, I mean, like all of these things, you know, <laughs> I, I research, you know, my performers before I begin to write something for them, because mm-hmm. then, you know, I want, I want there to be some kind of grounded understanding between the composer, you know, and the interpreters or the performers, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so to kind of see this process continue, you know, over a six year period, I just, I just thought was really fascinating to see. So, uh, so it, it definitely shed a lot of new light for me in terms of how to go forward with any other music that I would write after Ornations. So that that was really a gift to be able to work with you guys on this. So thank oh you. Gosh. Thank you. That's, thank you. It was so amazing for us too because I think, you know, going into this, we weren't, I mean, when we first got the piece, right, it's 2014. As an ensemble, we hadn't been around for that long at this point. Back then, I remember Liam and I were roommates when you wrote it and we got the score and we were like, well, fuck. (laughs) And we, you know, we would just go into the living room and literally we just many hours really slowly just, well, let's do that. Like two beats one more time. And it was amazing because I think that it, you know, it puts, it puts someone into that state where playing the piece can really be meditative because it just, it has to be, the piece is, is so, it's so expressive in its virtuosity that it has to just be a part of you when you step out to play it. Definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, it's about embodiment. You know, it's really about mm. this sort of um, embodiment of what's on the page and also what could come off the page as a result of that. <laughs> like I remember yeah. there, there were points where we would go over just some of the stuff that we were not on the page, like where like that little improvised section before it goes to the coda section of the piece or the final section of the piece. I remember us spending some time on that. And basically, I think I remember telling you, okay, like, so what we just did, now play that way, you know, as throughout the entire composition. The entire (laughs) composition should sound like this. You know what I mean? And so that was, um, I remember us spending a lot of time on that. And and you guys got it. You know, (laughs) you, you got it right away. You know, after like 
after we spent some time, you know, of course, you know, we dealt with some of the nuts and bolts with pitches and, you know, that kind of thing and rhythms. Yeah. And when it got time to deal with the actual embodiment of the material and really getting into the um, sort of improvisative behavioral aspects of what goes into performing the piece, mm-hmm. I mean, after spending that time on that little improvised section and then we would go back and run the piece a couple more times, I mean, there was nothing more I could say because you all were able to embody it rather quickly. And so that's a testament to how much, you know, commitment you've had towards the piece and how much you all were willing to really work and to really come up with something, you know, greater than what I originally imagined. It is about that sort of embodiment. And it's interesting, too, thinking about adornment and, you know, what that can take shape as throughout the piece. It's almost as though that end, that little right before the coda, that ending improvisation moment is the space, you know, from which you begin your adornment of how to embody the piece. It's like the the locus from which you adorn, yeah, what the body has to be doing in there. It's interesting. Exactly. Yep. Yeah, no, it definitely makes sense. Well, should we talk more about some general music things? Okay, maybe like back to some very, very early music experiences. We read in this New York Times profile of you that that you started drumming on makeshift kits that your father made for you. Is that true? Like where, (laughs) where you started thinking of yourself as maybe a musician or someone that liked to play music? And do you think that starting in that way affected the work you make now? I thought of myself in those days as somebody who, um, got a lot of joy out of playing music and who enjoyed playing music, you know, who did it for fun mostly. I mean, I listened to a lot of music in those days and I would also kind of play along to records and play along to, you know, music that I've heard on the radio or things I may have heard from a record collection. My uncle has an extensive record collection as well. So, um, so sometimes he would be using his DJ equipment downstairs or something. I would go down and join him and kind of would bang around. But this was all mostly for fun. I mean, I didn't really get into the idea of making it a life's work until I was pretty late in my, or I would say probably early in my teenage years where, mm-hmm. you know, I sort of wanted to make it my life's work. But again, it was kind of an idea, kind of a thing about playing for fun rather than about making a living from it or something like that. But yeah, but it, it was, it was during those times where, you know, music was mostly for fun. I think maybe around the age of seven or eight, I began to learn how to read, uh, playing trombone and stuff like that. So I uh, took up that. I already knew how to play piano by that age. I played piano by ear and picked up a lot of stuff that way. So I learned how to improvise a little bit later on. In my uh, junior high school years, I've learned how to improvise and I got pretty good at it. I guess for, you know, spending a lot of time on it, you know, practicing and whatnot, spending hours and hours practicing a day and Mm -hmm. uh, cutting class sometimes. That's what's up. (laughs) Yep. Yep. And so, um, you know, I still make good grades, but I I did cut a lot of class. (laughs) And in high school, you know, I did a lot of classical rep, you know, got all that stuff together on the trombone and did a lot of drum set playing, played in a lot of local groups. So, you know, I was always interested in performing music all the time and everything I did, you know, involved, you know, some kind of creativity, whether it had to do with art or it had to do with music or it had to do with writing or anything like that. You know, I was very much attracted to arts and sciences. But around around the time where I started sort of playing music professionally and playing in front of people was where I really started to feel like, okay, this is something that I really want to do, you know, for the rest of my life. So at that point, I just decided to 
do that. I was probably maybe about 16, 17 years old or whatever at the time where I decided, you know, this is something that I'm really, you know, taking seriously and that I'm going to do as a life's work. Mm -hmm. And so the rest has been history. Do you feel like your experience as a performer influences your compositions? Well, the process for me is the same, you know, Mm -hmm. in either context. You know, whenever I'm performing, I'm 100% in tune with the room, the people who are making the music with. I mean, it's important that I'm 100% in tune not only with myself and making sure my instrument is working and all of that, but also to make sure I'm 100% in tune with the musicians I'm working with and with the energy of the room. Mm. I mean, the people in the room, you know, who are making music for, as well as, you know, understanding what's on the page, but also being in tune with what's going on in the moment, you know, because in a lot of the music that I do, it's it's about the moment and it's about what's, what's going on at, at the current moment and how to get to the next place. And uh, when I'm writing a piece of music, the process is basically sort of the same. It's nothing more than really how to go from one moment to the next moment to the next moment to the next moment. And it's really about how I want to stay in a particular space. Like, do I want the music to go a lot of places or do I not want it to go anywhere? Because to me, that's also something that, frankly, I'm into. Like, sometimes, you know, music doesn't always have to go all over the place. I mean, music can just sometimes do one thing and it can become like this sort of trance, mm-hmm. which, you know, again, is another kind of meditation. You're, you're right. in this sort of sonic trance or something like that, mm-hmm. where, you know, you're in, a, you're, you're in a space that's really almost immobile, you know, in a lot of ways. Yeah. And so, you know, it's, it's, really, it's, it's really the same process. Like I, like I try to think as an improviser, and I, I try to make my performances my performances can be you know as coherent as i try to make them to be but then when i'm writing a piece of music i also wanted to maintain the same sort of coherency even if it's just doing one thing or even if it's just doing a multitude of things i I want there to be clarity always Mm -hmm. so that's that's what i look for you know whenever i'm writing music and then it comes from a place of honesty and then it comes from a place of not being so concerned with the technical aspects of it because that's only one aspect of what I'm hoping to achieve in the music and what I'm hoping the listener can take with them. I mean, what I want the listener to take from any experience of my music, whether or not I'm performing or I compose a piece for an ensemble to play is that, you know, I just want them to take something else with them that maybe they hadn't thought of taking with them. Something like, I mean, just taking a different kind of experience with them rather than, you know, just run of the mill you know, play music and, you know, one would just enjoy it. Like, I want to get the listeners to really think, you know, and I want to get them to really be in a place where where they've never been before as a listener. And so that's what I look for, whether or not I'm composing or I'm performing. So, you know, they they both kind of inform each other in that way. It's really cool. Yeah. As you write now more often for larger ensembles, like for an orchestra, for instance, does it change how you think about the parts you're writing because you can't necessarily research every individual yeah you can't necessarily research every individual of the ensemble i tend to think more in broader strokes i guess i mean like i just whenever i'm writing for an orchestra i can't write you know or for a larger ensemble i can't write you know passages in the same way that i would you know if i were to write for three or four people you know what i mean Mm -hmm. something like that it's just it's just not just in terms of the acoustical realities of, you know, the 
situation or whatever, how to get and how to get a large group of players or whatever to move a quick moving passage or whatever. Just seeing how that's that is that's going to be much more difficult than to get for you know for example like you know four people to kind of do the same thing or whatever to do like a quick moving passage or something. So I try to think more or less in broader strokes, although. I don't want to mean to say that, you know, I'm dumbing the music down in any way. But just in general, making sure that things are super clear for the performers and in the large group and that kind of thing. And hopefully everything will be clear enough to where the music will be executed the way that I want it to be. But also understanding, you know, what it would take or whatever to move a large group of players as a conductor and, you know, just how just how the music would overall move just in terms of speed or whatever not necessarily in tempo but in terms of the speed of it all in terms of you know the um momentum i would say just thinking more more about that kind of stuff and seeing what's possible uh, within that it sounds like like on some level maybe you've always kind of known that music is about people and about um being present in the moment but do any memories stick out of like particular mentors people you played with or whatever who express that to you in a way where you were like oh yeah that's 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 how it is jam yeah you know well i mean it's always been natural for me but you know one person who i a lot of people i can mention or whatever but roscoe mitchell um sort of comes at the top of my head just because i mean he's one of the more recent people who i've been who i've been making quite a lot of music with uh for the past about eight years or so um but anyway i mentioned him because um, he often, you know, lays out these nuggets of information or whatever. Like he's not much of a talker, but whenever we do rehearse or whenever we do perform or whatever, like I would hear him like lay out these nuggets of information. And I remember, I recall him saying once that well, silence is perfect. And I was like, whoa, this is, <laughs> you know, this is really, this is super interesting for me because what that told me was that like, silence is perfect and you know if you're going to interrupt that silence with any sound that you make or whatever when we're on stage or you know whatever you better be damn sure that the sound that you produce matches that level of you know matches that high level that silence proposes the sound you produce you know of course it has to be you know as good as the silence or you know it, it, it better be something that's worth filling that that space or else you're not really doing anything in other words like each sound you make has to have some kind of purpose you know it has to have some kind of you know direction or it can have no direction but the, the main point of it being that it, it there, there has to be some kind of value in whatever you choose to bring at that moment and yeah. so um by him saying that it, it just really confirmed for me that every sound that i make i mean it's it's for a reason you know each, each sound that you produce is for a reason i mean for me i'm not just getting up there you know whenever i get up and just play a concert of improvising like it's never really about improvising quote unquote it's really about creating a spontaneous composition another way you know that both composition and and the way that i perform or whatever both of these things are largely based on craft and so by being around people like roscoe and people like that it, it sort of confirmed for me that i was going in the right direction in terms of you know whenever i would get up and improvise it's never been a thing about 
you know, well, I'm just getting up there and I'm going to jam with some people, like, you know, or just I'm going to go up there and just make some sounds and, and hope people dig it. Or, you know, it's like I'm, I'm not really thinking in that kind of mindset when I'm on stage by myself or performing with other people. I mean, it's, it's really about making a piece of music, you know, it's, but there also, again, you know, there should also be room for silence in there as well. It's, just, it's, it's a practical thing. I mean, you, you can play when you want to and you can rest when you want to. It's very simple. It's a lot more simple than people <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, make it out to be. It's very hard to deal with on a kind of level where you can, like, that's another level of virtuosity that that I continually strive to, you know, arrive at. It's always great making music with them. But, but those three words, silence is perfect. Like, I'll never forget that. Yeah, it sets uh, the and, standard and what, really and high. What, <laughs> yeah, and what that really <laughs> set into motion in terms of, what I decided to do not only as an improviser but also as a composer and so that's why a lot of my music is slowly moving and a lot of my music is you know because it's I don't try to be too careful but I want to make sure that I know that what I'm doing is in some way you know relation to how I feel about that silence or to how that silence makes me feel so I try to maintain that imprint whether or not I'm writing or performing Mm -hmm. absolutely all right, you ready for a a good old fashioned tough question? Oh boy, one of those. Okay, <laughs> yeah, let's do it. What's up? <laughs> okay, so why does contemporary music, whatever that means to us, matter, and why does your music matter? Hmm. We can also skip this one. I feel like we kind of already answered that. Yeah, I feel like we talked about it a lot. Yeah, it's a spiritual matter. It's about connecting people and connecting to the present moment yeah. right pushing people yeah yep. i will say you know contemporary music will only matter to those who those who really want to be challenged and those who are who really want to experience something that's meaningful and that's enduring given the climate of how people tend to value entertainment over something like contemporary music and I don't see much of a future in terms of a wider public necessarily appreciating contemporary music. I, I think that I'm, I'm glad to see that there is a little bit more appreciation for it and everything, but I still don't think that there's enough of it. But I, but I still do think it matters because, I mean, for me personally, this is something that, you know, has inspired me to go in, in the direction that I went, you know, in terms of my own work. So, I mean, I didn't really pursue music for the sake of entertainment, although entertainment was what got me into exploring music when I found out about more sophisticated forms of music or you know, just finding out more about what music can do to the mind and what, what it can do to the person and how it can change people. That's what really sort of made me stick to it. And that's what really drove me to, you know, pursue it in a way that I have. So, you know, for me, it was never, it, was, it wasn't really about entertainment. And contemporary music, much of it is not about entertainment. You know, it's not about trying to be famous or something like that. I mean, people do it because they have to. They do it because, you know, they absolutely must do it. And they feel like it's, it's, it's a part of their way of life. It's a part of who they are as individuals. And I feel like that's the same type of person that I am. I feel like 
contemporary music is um, is a strong part of who I am, and I feel like I just hope to make music that expands people's consciousness mm-hmm. and not um, washes it away or something. Like I I, I, mm-hmm. I just I just look to expand you know people's consciousness because contemporary music has done that to mine, and so it's um and it, it inspires me to continue doing that. So in terms of whether or not it matters, yes, it does matter, but it's only going to matter to people if if they want their consciousness to be raised or if they want it to be heightened. But if they want to be entertained, then obviously they will go to the uh, entertainment side of music and see that as something of value. And I see nothing wrong with it in either case. But for my personal taste, you know, it does matter to me. And I hope mm-hmm. to and hope that my music can also matter in that same sort of way. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really beautifully put. Yeah. I think we're going to we're going to pivot really quick and ask you about do you have a favorite composing snack? Like I feel like I always need to eat while I'm doing work. Is there anything mm-hmm. like do you allow that into your like brain space at that time? Is there anything that if people are like I want to write like Taishan that they should eat while they compose? Oh boy, black water. Black water will get you through. Trust me. <laughs> Do you mean coffee? Coffee. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, you know, best believe you will see, you you will see a cup of coffee. You know, anytime I'm <laughs> writing music, and you will see it refilled. You know, quite a lot. So mm-hmm. it's, it's it's uh, so coffee. That's 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 a big one. Yeah, that covered. Yeah, we're we're drinking that right now. Black coffee. No 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 cream. No sugar. Nothing. <laughs> Black coffee. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Okay, so if you could pick a superpower, what would it be? I can't answer that. <laughs> uh, superpower. Let me see. I, I can't really tell you. I don't, I don't really. I don't really think about that stuff. <laughs> You're like, I have a superpower already. I mean, yeah. I mean, music makes me crazy enough. I think. I think I'm good there. <laughs> you don't need to like fly in addition to it. That's just too much, then, huh? Exactly. Just. Have you seen any movies lately that you really liked? Or really disliked? You know, a movie that I keep coming back to um, pretty often. I mean, I'm very much influenced a lot by film. Mm-hmm. But I'm also kind of an old school type of person when it comes to film. Like, I watch a lot of older directors. Mm-hmm. And one of my favorite directors is John Cassavetes, who's, who's done some incredible movies. But one movie I keep returning back to is A Woman Under the Influence. And he had done this movie, I think somewhere around the early to mid-70s. I, can, I think it was 73, 74 release or something like that. But it's 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 a wonderful movie that I'm finding myself coming back to again and again because, of way, one, the subject matter and everything, which I won't talk about because it's a very dark sort of subject matter and also a sensitive one for me, but also the screenplay and everything and the way that the characters in that movie morph over time. <laughs> And, and how it unfolds so slowly, um, I think I think that's all a very interesting thing about you know some of Cassavetes' movies and everything. A lot of his movies kind of tend to do that. They tend to have this sort of unfolding um, that's going on there that that does so rather slowly, but also it has an interesting twist to it in terms of how the characters change over that period of time. So, um, but that's one movie that I would say that I definitely finding myself coming back to i'm also a horror movie junkie like i'm very much into horror <laughs> movies um, and that that kind of thing so uh um, you know, I, I also <laughs> oh yeah, yeah 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 i love that stuff it's, it's, <laughs> it's really cool stuff but i i don't have 
as much time as I would like as I used to have or whatever when it came to watching any kind of movie. So yeah, you know, any time to come by for you. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's, it's impossible. <laughs> so uh, whenever I watch movies nowadays or whatever, it's mostly a lot of documentaries, and I'm very much into documentaries and historical documentaries and things like this. So these are things that I watch nowadays. But but Cassavetes, uh for a long time has been my guy, and also David Lynch, you know, for a long time has been a heavy influence on me as well mm. um particularly lost highway eraser head and wall and drive and uh, blue velvet those are like those are like my favorite uh, movies that that he's done and uh, i mean the twin peak stuff is also incredible uh, yeah. and everything but but this was when i didn't really have much of a life <laughs> and so <laughs> um this was when i would like be touring and stuff like that as a musician like touring with bands sitting on these trays like you know going all over europe and everything you just have like commute you know, time gotta watch watching. a movie yeah yep sitting watching movies or whatever and people looking at me like what the fuck is he watching yeah so those those were fun those were fun moments and everything but nowadays you know whenever i can you know get some time and watch a movie that's you know it's i hardly ever return to those films but when i do return to those films i always learn something new um, each mm. time what are you writing currently? Can you talk about any projects you have coming up or anything you're specifically excited about? Sure. Um, well, there's, there's no project that I'm not excited about. Um, <laughs> in fact, um, I, just, I just finished a um, song cycle for Devon Times. I just finished a song cycle of uh, three pieces for him. Yeah. Um, I think they're going to be performed next month at Carnegie Hall, I believe. And um, I'm also very busy working on two pieces. I don't know how I'm going to get them done in a month, but <laughs> we'll see. Uh, but one, one piece is for the one piece is for Seth Parker Woods in the Seattle Symphony, and oh, another right. piece and another piece is for Joy Guidry and Rebecca Heller is a piece for two bassoons oh, awesome. uh, that I'm going to be doing. So I'm really excited about that. And after that, there's going to be a piece for. Jenny Coe and possibly the New Jersey Symphony Orchestra. I'm still waiting to hear, you know, just some details about that, but I'm looking forward to to that coming up. And then there's a very big piece that I'm writing for the commemoration of the 50th anniversary of the Rothbard Chapel, mm-hmm. uh, which is going to be happening next year. So I'm very excited about that. Oh, that's wow, so cool. that's amazing. That makes me want to go visit. We should like, go watch. for the concert. We should go for the concert. Uh. <laughs> Yeah, totally. Yeah, totally should go. Uh, this is gonna be really amazing. Oh, that's so cool. And there's a there's a short shortish kind of piece that I'm gonna be working on for the pianist Awadaj and Pratt and Roomful, uh, Roomful of Teeth. So it's gonna, there's another piece I'm working on for them. So this is all mostly sort of 2021 season, like 21, 22 season. Things are still sort of being finalized or whatever, yeah. but. Right now, that's that's kind of stuff that's this is stuff that's kind of coming down the pike at the moment. Man, that's a lot of awesome stuff coming down that pipe. Mm-hmm. It is. Cool. Yeah, <laughs> I see why you're excited about everything. <laughs> well, when am I going to write for you guys? Yeah, oh. yeah, something. Yes. Nice. We need, we need, we we need to get that going. Yes, yeah. we do. Let's do it. Write another piece. Let's do it. Yes. Should yeah. we do our last segment of very important questions? They're short. Yeah, um, a mandatory part of every podcast is playing Would You Rather. So we'll just ask <laughs> just one or two Would You Rather questions. All right, so... Wait, um, what? Have you, ever, have you played Would You Rather? No. Okay, so we're going to ask you a question, 
We're going to give you a very difficult choice between two options. Yes. And you got to pick one and tell us why. Okay. Okay. So would you rather live in a world that had squirrel-sized spiders or have tiny squirrels instead of spiders? Tiny squirrels instead of spiders. Tiny squirrels squirrels. (laughs) (laughs) You guys both agree on this one, huh? Yes. Although now that... I said that so quickly, but I'm thinking, like, do the squirrels still make webs? No, they're squirrels. So there'd be a lot more bugs in the world. Yep. Huh, okay. Okay. Wow. Okay. Whoa, 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 whoa. What? <laughs> <laughs> Are you still on team There'll tiny be more squirrels? Bugs. <laughs> maybe, the, maybe the tiny squirrels would still eat bugs. They would eat bugs? Yeah. I think- maybe. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll, 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 I'll take the squirrels. I'll take the squirrels over to spiders. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay. Would you rather only be able to speak in words longer than 10 letters or only speak in words that were less than five letters? That's interesting. Some, most of the times I'd rather not talk at all. But, <laughs> but uh, I probably would say words that are less than five letters. Okay. Would you I'm rather? Not, I'm have... not much of a talker to begin with, so that's that's. <laughs> so it kind of like sets up good parameters there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And forces you to be efficient too. Yeah, like, efficiency. Really yeah. clear. Yeah, silence is perfect, dude. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if you could only eat everything in liquid form or crunchy form, but the crunch were from bugs, which would you select? Something in liquid form. Obviously. <laughs> Sorry, all of I realize all of my questions are about like food and bugs, but I guess that just says like where my mind is right now. Bugs. Hilarious. All about bugs. So liquid form, no bugs for you. Yeah, no, absolutely not. Squirrels got to get them before I can see them. Well, thank you so much for chatting with us, Tyshawn. This has been super interesting and really fun. Yeah. It was amazing. It was super fun. I'm really glad we got to do this because oftentimes I never really talk about my music to people that much. So this was so this was this was really fun to kind of get in depth about our nations and about influences. And this was really good. And and to especially do it with with you all at at, at talk. I mean, I, I just thought that this was you know this was a great opportunity. So thank you oh for gosh, reaching yeah. out. You know, thank you. Yeah. We do it. yeah, and I hope you can yeah. get a, a little bit of. R&R, rest and relaxation. Is that what that even stands for? Mm-hmm. Or is it like research? No, rest and relaxation. <laughs> rest and research. Here we go. <laughs> so rest and relaxation and research, I guess. Our R&R. Our yeah. R&R. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, absolutely. And we'll talk more soon. Yeah, yes. talk to you soon. Have a lovely rest of your day. Thanks, you too. All right, bye-bye, Tyshawn. Bye, Tyshawn. Bye. This has been the Talk Editions Podcast, Episode 8, with Taishan Sori. Taishan's Peace or Nations is featured on Talk's recent album, Ur, which you can purchase at talkensemble.bandcamp.com. Stick around to hear the piece in its entirety at the end of this episode. If you're enjoying the Talk Editions Podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review it so others can find us. This episode was recorded at Tiny Panther Recording with help from Charles Muller and produced and edited by Charlotte Mundy. For more information about talk, go to talkensemble.com. Thanks for listening.